Just a quick word about something that's coming up. Some of you guys may not know that we, we have just finished a couple of very intense series that we've been in since the beginning of the year. Uh, one of them on how to change, how to experience real change, and then the other one uh, was about marriage. And those were, like I said, pretty intense series. And so decided that we're going to kind of lighten things up a little bit for the, next, uh, for the next series that we start starting next week. And the series is going to be called City Church at the Movies. In fact, you probably got a little flyer in your program about that. And we're going to be taking a look at four movies that were nominated for Oscars uh, for Best Picture. The first one is going to be Dallas Buyers Club. The second one is 12 Years a Slave. The third one is Philomena. And then the last one is the movie Nebraska. Now, we're not going to watch the whole movie, but what we're going to be doing is reviewing those movies. And what we're, what we're going to try to do is, is see how elements of the gospel permeates those movies. There is a mistaken thought among many that somehow Christianity and the arts cannot go hand in hand. And we really believe that they can go hand in hand. And what we want to do is understand how, you know, what are, what are the redemptive elements of each one of those movies? And we're going to be analyzing that, and we want to reverse this mindset that somehow creativity and the arts don't go together. And so we'd love to have you join us for that series. If you have the opportunity, come back. We're going to do all four of those, and uh, I think it'll be a, a lot of fun. Today, what we want to do is what most churches traditionally do on Easter. We want to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the possibilities that his resurrection accomplished for us. And in fact, what we want you to know, those of you who are new, we want you to know that we unapologetically believe that the three most important days in human history were the three days that surrounded the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And we believe that those three days changed the course of the world because the power of God was unleashed upon sin and upon death. And we want you to know that that power of God is still at work in the lives of people today. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Ephesians chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you to look at. But if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I think one of the most tragic things in all of the world is that there are many people, and perhaps some of you would be included in this, who have gone their entire lives without understanding or experiencing the beauty and the heart and the distinctive of the Christian message. Someone told you somewhere, uh, or someone taught you erroneously, that Christianity is just a list of wearisome duties and obligations. And as a result, you've never experienced for yourself the cataclysmic life change that millions of people throughout history have experienced through Jesus. The writer of the book of Ephesians, his name is the Apostle Paul would challenge anyone who teaches that Christianity is about duty and obligation. Just a little context here on this passage that we're going to look at. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the greatness of God's power would be made obvious throughout the world. Now in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins to tell us that one of the greatest evidences of this power is when Christ comes along and resurrects a life that is full of deadness and full of brokenness. And you'll notice in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, we're not going to read all of this verse, but I just want you to see this. In verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. Now, now understand that when Paul says that, when he says you were dead in transgressions and sins, he's talking to people who were very much physically alive when he says that they were dead. I don't know if you realize that, but it is possible to be very much physically alive and yet be dead spiritually. 
Uh, Paul is saying it's possible to be among the walking dead. And people, these are people who have never experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you personally that having been one of these walking dead that Paul is describing here in verse 1, for many years in my life before I met Christ and before I experienced the resurrection power of Christ, uh, I can tell you that every once in a while, every once in a while, that deadness that I felt would break into my conscious experience. And the way that it would break into my conscious experience would be in these feelings of emptiness and feelings of brokenness and lostness and a sense of meaninglessness at times. So like it might be, uh, it might be when another party was over and the last dance had been danced and I woke up the next morning with another in a long string of hangover headaches. And I would just wonder, is this all there is to life? Or it might be like sometimes at night when the lights were out and the TV was off and I would just lay in bed just before I would go to sleep and I would just wonder, can I continue, can I continue to do this same routine of work, home, bed, work, home, bed, work, home, bed? Can I continue to do this for the rest of my life? Is this all there is to life? And this is what Paul is saying. This is what he means when he says, as for you, you were dead. But suddenly in verse 4, there is a resurrection. And I want you to see this in verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Understand that what Paul is saying here is that the historical reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead made possible your own resurrection from spiritual deadness through faith in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And this, Paul repeats three times in these verses, is made possible not on the basis of filling, uh, fulfilling duties and obligations and rules and laws, but he said it's made possible by what he calls the grace of God. Did you notice this? Verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7, in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There's the word again. Verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved, not by works. In other words, not by duty and obligations and rules and laws and codes of conduct. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, Here's the question, and this is really the question that I want to answer today. What does Paul mean by this word grace? And all I want to accomplish today is I want to make sure that you understand this word grace. Because this is the word that distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. And this is the word that Christianity uh, is all about. It is very important because I'm going to tell you something. Your soul, your soul 
does not need rules and regulations and codes of conduct and laws. Your soul needs God's grace. And so I want to make sure this morning that you understand uh, this word. And I want to just start with a definition of this word grace. Grace is, here's the definition, grace is doing good for someone who deserves the complete opposite from you. It is doing good for someone who deserves the complete opposite from you. Okay, now, I, I think that you'll understand that this makes grace, in a way, uh, more than just love. Okay, so let me give you an example. Love is when you do something good for someone who needs it. You, you have a neighbor, and uh, he asks you to mow his yard while he's in hospital recovering from surgery, and you decide that you're going to do that. That's love, because you're, you're doing good for someone who needs it. Okay, that's, that's love. Grace, though, is when you do good to someone who deserves the opposite from you. So imagine that you have a neighbor that throws beer cans into your backyard uh, over his fence, and he steals your paper uh, three days out of the week, and he poisoned your dog. And you learn that he is in the hospital for surgery. And you decide, I'm going to mow his yard. That is grace, right? That's what grace is. It's when you do something good for someone who deserves the complete opposite from you. Now, that is what the message of Christianity is all about. See, the message of Christianity is that because of your sin, because you and I, both, all of us, everyone in the room, because we deserve the opposite of God's love. God still reaches out to us in grace, and he rescues us who deserve the opposite. Did you notice, did you notice how it says it in verse 8? Look at what it says in verse 8. Let's just reiterate that one more time. For it is by grace that you have been saved from a life of deadness here in this world and in the next. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, I will tell you that I will, I will bet you that there are some of you here this morning that this whole idea of grace makes you uh, very uncomfortable. And there is a very good reason for the fact that it makes you uh, uncomfortable. Grace. This idea that God had to reach out to you um, because you deserved the opposite of love. God had to go do something for you that you could never do for yourself. That's grace, right? Uh, I have a feeling that, I have a sense that it makes some of you very uneasy to hear about that. And there is a very good reason for that. Grace, and I want you to understand this this morning, grace is always traumatic to the receiver of grace. Grace is always traumatic to the receiver of grace. Now, 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 what do I mean by that? What do I mean that it's always traumatic to the receiver? The best way I can explain that is um, a, a, couple of, a couple of examples. Anyone here, uh, anyone here last year when it, you know, it, was, it was big last year, uh, anybody here see the, the, the movie, musical movie, Les Miserables? Or, or if you were French, you would say Les Miserables. Anybody here see that? Okay, raise your hand. All right. Full disclosure, uh, I did not see that movie. 
And uh, the reason is that I am not a big fan of musicals. Now, I know that that makes me, my wife would say, an uncultured Neanderthal. But I can never hear, I can never hear what they're singing in a musical. And so I'm always leaning over to my wife saying, what did he say? What did she say? I can never, I can never hear it. That's number one. And number two, it makes me uncomfortable when people are singing everything. Because they don't do, you don't do that in real life. You know, you, you don't say, you don't ask somebody, you know, what are, what are you getting ready to go do? And, and they I'm getting ready to mow my yard today. They don't do that. It just doesn't happen. And so I am very uncomfortable with that whole thing. You're clapping for my singing. I know that's what you're doing. It's like, it was like an opera for a moment, wasn't it? It was great. So I, didn't, I did not see the musical. Instead of that, what I did was I went back and I read the book. And the book is fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's a French historical novel, for those of you who don't know. It was written in 1862 by a man by the name of Victor Hugo, and I highly recommend the book. It's not an easy read. I will tell you, it's a long book, but it is great. You might make it like your goal to read through it for the rest of the year. It is really a great book. There are two incredible examples of grace uh, in this book, and I think that these two examples explain why grace is always traumatic to the receiver of grace. The first example is there's this man uh, really the main character of the book, and his name is Jean Valjean. Okay? Jean Valjean was wrongly imprisoned for 19 years. And while he was in prison, he became so embittered by all of the injustice that he had received and the abuse that he received in prison that he becomes a real criminal. And he adopts this attitude that because everyone has hurt and misused me, uh, I'm going to hit, hurt, and misuse everyone else. That's kind of the attitude. Can anybody, anybody here identify with that? Uh, I'll bet you. Yeah, I'll bet, you, I'll bet there are people here that have been hurt and misused. And so it's like it's just easier to say, I'm going to hurt and misuse everybody else. And I'm going to do it first. And I'm going to do it harder. Um, Valjean is finally paroled after 19 years of an unjust sentence. And he's taken in by this bishop, and the bishop takes him in just out of the goodness of his heart. But one moment, while the bishop's back is turned, Valjean steals the only possession that the bishop has of any value, this silver cutlery that he has in the dining room. And then Valjean runs. And the police catch him. And they find this a beggarly-looking man with all of this expensive silver. And, of course, it doesn't go together. And they bring him back. And they bring him to the bishop. And all the bishop has to say when he sees Valjean, all he has to say to him in that moment is, Thief! All, that's all he has to say. And Valjean is back in prison. But the bishop does the opposite. He looks at Valjean, and then he looks at the police, and he says, Of course I gave him the silver. But, John, I gave you the silver candlesticks too. Why didn't you take those as well? And then he hands them to them, and he says, Here, take those, and go in peace, and know that you are always welcome here. And, of course, the police had no choice but to but to let him go. It's an act of grace. Now, I don't have any idea what Victor Hugo's theology was, but he says something profound as the narrator about 
Valjean's response to the bishop's act of grace to him. And can I read this to you? Just well, what choice do you have? Of course, of course I can read it to you. <laughs> You're sitting, I'm standing. So here, here we go. But it's a little lengthy, but listen to this. It's so profound what he says. He says, Valjean could not have said whether he was touched or humiliated. In opposition to this grace, he summoned up pride. He dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack that he had ever sustained. Why? Why was it such an attack? Listen. Valjean felt that his hardness of heart would be complete if he resisted this grace, but that if he yielded to it, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of other men had for so many years filled his soul and in which he found satisfaction. Valjean felt that this time he must conquer or be conquered. And here's what, here's what Victor Hugo is saying. He's saying that when you're offered grace, it is very traumatic because it is so unexpected that it threatens the very basis in which you've been doing business with life for all of your life. Valjean had for years been getting satisfaction out of feeling righteous about his hatred. He had let the injustices of the world fill him with so much hatred that he felt justified in this. And he realized at this point that if, if he would receive this grace and, and if he would admit that he needed it, it would change the way that he lived his life. Listen again to what Victor Hugo said. He said, if he yielded, he would have to renounce the hatred with which the acts of other men had for so many years filled his soul and in which he found satisfaction. You see, a person who has really understood that God has given you the opposite of what you deserve, that person, anybody who understands that, will have to stop hating. You have to. Jean Valjean understood that. Do you understand that? He realized that it meant that he would lose control of his life if he responded to this grace. You see, here's the thing. If the bishop, if the bishop had sent him back to prison, on, on, on the one hand, that would have been hard, but in another, on the other hand, it would have been kind of a relief. Because Valjean could have gone on feeling all of this self-righteous hatred. He could constantly go on saying, I don't know anybody anything. I have a right to hate people. That's what he could have said. But if he gives in to grace, he has to renounce that hatred. And he, here's why. Here's why he has to renounce that hatred. Because at the heart of every one of us, there is a tremendous self-righteousness that goes like this. I want to owe no one anything. I will pay my way no matter how big the debt. No matter how much I've failed, I don't want grace from anybody because then I'll owe them and I can no longer be in charge. I have my pride. I have my dignity. I would rather die than receive grace. I'd rather go back to prison than have to admit that I owe anybody anything. 
to admit that I'm a sinner, to admit that I'm bankrupt. I I don't want to do that. I can't stay self-righteous if I do that. I can't look down my nose at other people. Jean Valjean understood that. And so what did he do? What was his response to the bishop's grace? He realizes that he will be changed forever. But he receives the grace. Listen, Victor Hugo again. Then Valjean's heart swelled. And he burst into tears. It was the first time that he had wept in 19 years. He could see his life and it seemed horrible. His soul And it seemed frightful. There was, however, suddenly, a gentler light shining on that life and soul. And what Victor Hugo is describing there is a resurrection that is brought on by grace, not by duty and obligation and rules and laws. Valjean had broken all of the rules and the laws. He had stolen from the bishop. But what changed him was the bishop's grace. And as a result, he was no longer the same man. See, what is so traumatic about grace is that it is humbling. It is, it is humbling. There's no way to receive grace without saying, yeah, I'm in need. Uh, I admit. I need help. Like, say it's Christmas time and somebody gives you a book uh, on um, uh, how to do a makeover and you receive it as a gift. I mean, it's kind of humbling, isn't it? Because you're like, you're just receiving it. You're saying, yeah, I guess I need a makeover. Or if somebody gives you, uh, like, the idiot's guide to personal finances and you take it. And it's, it's kind of humbling because it's like, yeah, I guess I, I guess I really am an idiot when it comes to personal finances. I guess I'm a mess. I mean, that's very humbling, isn't it? And so is grace. It is traumatic to receive that because there's something about all of us that would like to say, I don't owe anybody anything. I don't need anything. I'm fine on my own. Thank you very much. It's humbling. There's the second example in Les Miserables. And it's this policeman, and his name is Javert. Javert has been chasing after Jean Valjean for years, hunting him down and trying to bring him to justice. Now, what's so fascinating about Javert is that he is just as self-righteous as Jean Valjean, but his self-righteousness looks very different. See, Valjean's self-righteousness manifested itself in a hatred for other people who had done him wrong and who had hurt him. Javert is completely on the other side of that. His looks very different. Javert has always been on the right side of life. Valjean on the wrong side of life. Javert always on the right side of life. He's always been one of the good guys. He's he's always been chasing the bad guys. And Javert kind of looks at life this way. He says, he's like, there are good people and there are bad people and there are winners and then there are losers. And losers... Losers need grace, but not me. I'm a winner. See how he, see how he thinks of things? Right? 
Unfortunately, though, for Javert, there is a place in the story at which he finds Valjean, finally. And Valjean is in a position where he could kill Javert. And Javert knows that. What do you think, what do you think Valjean does? He lets him go. And he gives him his life. And now suddenly Javert is in the same position that Valjean was in of having to receive grace. And Javert doesn't want to. Because you see, if he receives grace, he can't keep his self-righteous universe anymore because then he, the winner, would owe a loser. He can't be in a position to owe anything. He shouldn't need anything. He's strong. He's tough. He's moral. He's a decent person. He's a winner. But this is even worse. Not only now is he indebted to another strong person, but he's indebted to a loser at that, a wicked person in his estimation. But worse than that, he is amazed to look in these eyes of Jean Valjean and into the face of this so-called loser. And he sees Javert, sees in Valjean a nobility and a love and a compassion that he knows isn't in his heart. And suddenly his world is turned completely upside down. And he realizes that in order to receive this grace, He's going to have to change everything. He's going to have to admit that he, the winner, is also a sinner, that he is bankrupt. And he won't do it. He won't do it. Because at the heart of both the winner's self-righteousness and the loser's self-righteousness is this heart that says, I'm paying my own way. I don't need anyone to give me anything. I don't want to be indebted to anybody. And the thing about Victor Hugo that's so amazing, again, I don't know his theology, but what is so profound, he knows that if you stay with that attitude, if you stay with the attitude that Javert has, that I'm a winner and I don't owe anybody anything and I don't want to receive grace from anybody, he knows that if you stay with that for a lifetime, it is personal suicide eventually. And so Javert rather than accepting grace, kills himself. Grace is always traumatic to the receiver because it is so profoundly humbling. It requires that you acknowledge that whether you think you're a winner or whether you think you're a loser at life, you're needy. There's something that you can't do for yourself. And once you receive it, you lose complete control. That is why I say that grace is so traumatic to the receiver. So, so grace is this thing that you do for someone who deserves the complete opposite. And you do good for someone who deserves the complete opposite for you. That's what grace is. But it is also very traumatic to the person on the receiving end. But there's one last thing that you need to know about grace. And then I'll, I'll close with this. That grace is always expensive to the giver. It's traumatic to the receiver. But it is always very expensive to the giver. In any situation 
where grace is present, it always comes at a very expensive cost to the giver. And in the case of God's grace to you and to me, the cost was the atrocious death of his innocent son on a Roman cross, his body broken and his blood shed for my sins and for your sins. And that is profoundly humbling, is it not? It just crushes your pride. And it just crushes your self-righteousness. And what it means is that you and I are such wicked sinners, whether you're a winner, whether you're a loser, whether you've been in church all your life, whether you've never been in church before, whether you're moral and decent, or whether you're not. It means that all of us are such wicked sinners that the only way that God could rescue any of us was through the death of his son. And that's as true for losers as it is for winners. Now, I, I, I believe that there are probably people here this morning who are feeling, wow, this is also very primitive. <laughs> uh, I can't believe that anybody in the 21st century uh, still believes this stuff, blood atonement and wrath of God stuff. Haven't we advanced as a society past all of this? That's probably what some of you are thinking. And, I understand, but be careful. Be careful. Because what you might find beneath your intellectual objections to Christianity that you learned in Religion 101, you might just find that the real threat to you is grace itself. It is very traumatic to recognize that you need grace and that if you receive it, your life is going to be changed Forever. Grace is beautiful, but it is traumatic. On the other hand, if you could admit your need for grace in the form of a Savior, if you could humble yourself and if you can bow your knee to a crucified Christ, you will experience a personal resurrection made possible for you by the grace of God, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, over 2,000 years ago, you will be made alive today if you can bow your knee at his cross. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, there are uh, undoubtedly people here today who have never heard of the grace of God, they have um, thought of Christianity all of their life as rules and duties and obligations and things that they can never live up to. And Lord, uh, I pray that even this afternoon, uh, perhaps later this week, maybe even in this very moment, that you would bring this idea of grace, uh, open their hearts and let them hear it in a way that they have never heard before. And Lord, would you do a personal resurrection this morning, right here, this moment, in the lives of people that are here today? Lord, there are people here today who've heard about grace and, and who even, you know, they, they, they would say that they believe in grace, but they've never really understood grace. Lord, for all of us here this morning, would you bring us to the 
to our knees. That we would bow at the throne of Jesus Christ. And that we would receive the grace that you have extended to us. And your, by your initiation, you have extended it to us. Not because we deserved it, but because we deserved completely the opposite. Because of who you are. You are rich in mercy. You extended grace to us. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never accepted this grace, right now do it in the privacy of your seat, privacy of your heart. Uh, you don't have to walk an aisle. You can do it right in the privacy of your seat. But would you receive that grace today? Would you humble yourself and receive that grace this morning? And when you do, you will be made alive. You will move from the realm of the walking dead into those that are resurrected and that are living in the name of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. You will be raised up with Christ. You will join him in the heavenly places. One day in the future, there will be a bodily resurrection for you today you would receive the grace of God. And you could do that by acknowledging I am a sinner, I am needy, I am broken. I need a Savior. Jesus, be my Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. You are raised, you are alive. And we believe that. Lord, I pray that today there would be many who would come to a personal relationship with you as a result of your grace, not out of duty, not out of obligation, not because they've lived up to anything, but because you simply have extended grace to them. And Lord, let this moment be a, a watershed moment in their life where they would go from death to life. And we believe that you could do that today. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen. Our ushers are going to accept an offering. If you are new here and you have a guest card, just put that in the bucket. If you're a regular attender here, we'd love it if you would support the ministry of City Church. Thank you.
Sings my soul, my Savior God. 
over here in the corner at the end of every service. If you'd like to come and pray with them or if you have something that you would like for them to pray for, please feel free to come over here at the end of the service and be prayed for or pray. Just want to encourage you to remember that next week we're going to do a series uh, called City Church at the Movies. We invite you to come back. You're always welcome to come back for that. We'd love to have you. And just remember this, that the cross changes everything. Say that with me, would you? The cross changes everything. Have a great Easter. We will see you again next week. Bye-bye.